Chapter 7. Kiev. A Capital Reborn. Some moments change your worldview forever. Myself, I experienced such a moment one summer evening at the Kiev Central Station in 2002. A friend and I had just arrived from Poland and were looking to get tickets for our onward journey eastward. The long queues to the windows advanced at a snail's pace and, after half an hour, we had almost reached our turn. Then suddenly, the ticket seller stood up, turned her sign around, closed the window and sauntered off. Time for a break. The queue quietly dispersed as the jaded Ukrainian slunk away to stand in line elsewhere. The two of us stayed put, silently gaping. After gathering our wits and understanding the rules of the game, we followed the other's example. Another long wait later, our new queue had almost ended, but, reaching the window, our tribulations continued. For no English phrases were understood, perhaps deliberately, and our attempts at faltering Russian to find out prices and routes were greeted with peevish tirades or apathetic indifference. After a while, the clerk tired of us, and turning to chat with a colleague, started to pack things into a bag. Then followed another change of cue, more pleading at information desks, angry outbursts at the windows, and pathetic attempts to reset the mood with polite and ingratiating phrases. Our brush with Homo Sovieticus was not unexpected, yet shocking nonetheless. Once we had finally bought our tickets, we rented a room for the night. But a shower, a meal, and a shared bottle of wine failed to assuage my friend's fury, and he raged on and on about the staff's complete lack of interest in providing service to those who paid their salaries. I lay in bed, shaking with uncontrollable laughter. At everything. The situation, my wound-up friend's stress response, and our fawning, weedy strategies for appeasing the state train operator, Ukozelitsnitsia's implacable employees. Sure, their behaviour was offensive, but there was also something puzzling about it. A flash of one of mankind's gloomiest nooks, a glimpse of the ability to cut the instinctive ties that make us respond to the needs of our fellows. Instinctively, either we humans meet such needs by trying to help, or we oppose them. But being impervious to them takes something else. Dehumanization. Normal, decent people, loving parents, loyal friends, we can all learn the art of seeing our neighbour as biomass. I lay pondering this between my sheets, and slowly it came to me. The reason we found our treatment so mystifying was that we automatically assumed a prevailing market logic centred on our customer needs. The perspective of the staff was of another kind, with different motives and motivations. The Ukazelaznitsia staff were parts of an earlier Soviet transport organisation whose trains covered a third of the world's surface from Vladivostok to St. Petersburg. The trains rolled and the system worked day and night, year after year, in temperatures that ranged between minus and plus 40 degrees. And everything would have gone so much more smoothly had it not been for these scatterbrained, ignorant epsilons who insisted on being passengers. They were the ones who asked stupid questions, went the wrong way, got entangled in baggage and created delays and stress. The staff were an army guarding a formidable system, the 
passengers, the ever-present swarm of pesky mosquitoes, the recurring headache, the threat to harmony. The less they could care about the strange ways of these intruders, the better. In the central mechanism of Soviet production, in its soul, which lived on even when the body had died, the core concern was to protect the integrity and aims of the supply side. Production, not utilisation, was the point. This insight was staggering. Sure, my experience of almost spiritual insight into the mysteries of Ukrainian society this evening was partly down to being overtired, tipsy, and in a soft bed after having been rattled about on a railway bunk for 24 hours, but it was also about something more profound than the uselessness of the planned economy. It was a genuine discovery that behind conduct that seems incomprehensible, idiotic, and self-destructive, are often drivers that, given the circumstances, are natural and actually altogether sensible. In the good old days of the Soviet Union, visitors to lunch restaurants could be greeted by the sign, Closed for Lunch. Completely logical, since the purpose of the business was to offer lunch for a certain number of productive hours. Customers would have to make sure to visit the establishment either before or after lunch hour. Was not the well-being and the right to have lunch for the staff just as important as the visitors? That went without saying. When a phenomenon is observed from another angle, its hidden motivators and mechanisms are revealed. You can condemn without understanding. But the one who really grasps the logic of a phenomenon is better placed to see what is needed to bring about permanent change. That was the insight that took root in me this summer night. I drifted off to sleep, blissfully smiling. Today's Ukrainian business, however, is somewhat different to what it was at the turn of the millennium. There are still parts of the sector where surliness, ill-humour and customer hostility thrive and chafe against modernity. It is not just the railways. The oil and gas company Naftagaz largely operates as a politically controlled, puffed-up monopoly. And to this day, the country has over 2,000 state-owned companies, for which the government is launching modernisation programmes. In November 2019, the Zelensky ministry announced that 500 state companies would be sold off to private investors over the coming years. The Ukraine of the early 21st century was a different beast. The transformation of old Kiev into a new, less familiar identity with a new approach took off in the middle of the noughties. A symbolic watershed was the Eurovision Song Contest in Istanbul in the spring of 2004, which saw singer Ruslana stomp around singing wild dances with a bevy of dancers clad in ripped furs and animal skins in what was intended to evoke some untamed Middle Ages. Russia was one of the countries to award the highest points to its fraternal nation. Ukraine won a triumphant victory and had to arrange the following year's contest. Half a year later, in November, Ukraine held a presidential election. Initially, the pro-Russian Viktor Yanukovych from eastern Ukraine was declared the victor, but when the result was announced, the country began to seethe with allegations of electoral fraud, claims that international observers backed up. Soon, both the EU and the US were demanding a new election, and the Orange Revolution flared up. 
the demonstrations that surged forth on the streets quickly proved effective. Following a second election on Boxing Day, the pro-West, Viktor Yushchenko, seconded by Yulia Timoshenko, took office in January. When it was time for Eurovision in Kiev in 2005, Yushchenko entered the stage to award the trophy in person in Kiev's Palace of Sports. Ukraine had now also waived the need for entry visas to the country. The gala came to define 21st century Ukraine, a newly opened country that presented itself to a Europe towards which it was now slowly moving. Or perhaps I should say that Ukraine discovered Europe as a possible affiliation. In all events, something was born that would grow stronger over the next 15 years. But the journey was a long and bumpy one. The fact that it was not until Poroshenko rose to power that Ukraine had its first president able to speak English says something about the country's hard-won identity, a planet orbiting safely in Russia's gravitational pull. More of a natural phenomenon than a political choice. As a visitor in 2002, I had the impression that the West and Europe were seen as an abstraction, remote and irrelevant. The visiting Westerner was less a real person than a kind of well-to-do alien from outer space who spoke a funny language and took photographs. If it asked something but failed to understand the answer, Ukrainians would simply repeat themselves in a louder voice. Kiev has enjoyed a position as the Russian Empire's third city. Scarred, charming, grand, and yet for centuries peripheral relative to the empire's two capitals in the north. Despite its size, the megacity remained slightly provincial and inward-looking. According to Anna Reid, Ukraine's history of mixed identity is one explanation for what she sees as Kiev's lack of ethnic and ideological fire. For 700 years, it has been a borderland city, a sleepy periphery to a buzzing centre elsewhere. Thrust to stardom on independence, it has not let fame change its style. The state-owned television channels subsist on folk-dancing footage intercut with shaky helicopter shots of Santa Sofia. Reed's description is a few years old and is no longer wholly just. The mentality changed in the 2010s, particularly in the media as well as by the media. But the pragmatic, easy attitude, the desire for renewal, change and freedom from pompous pride is still there. Kiev is grand, but not pompous. Kiev's splendour and hugeness can still take a visitor's breath away. The dilapidation remains and is even visible here and there in rusting iron girders and decaying facades. Ukraine is, after all, a country with a war and a declining demographic to contend with. But in Kiev, one is surrounded by building projects left, right and centre. The residential blocks always seem twice as high and twice as wide as those in Sweden and stand twice as densely. In January 2020, it was announced that the city had a population of 3.7 million and was steadily growing. It also had a nastily brutal traffic situation with a motorway that ploughs mercilessly through the city centre. The fashionable Krishatik Street with the grand buildings that Stalin had built after the devastation of the Second World War leads up to Maidan Square, the city's exuberant, self-appointed centre. 
On the hill above the river delta rises the Lavra Monastery complex with its abundant cluster of domes. And what can one say of Rodina Mat, the motherland monument, just a stone's throw away? A 62-metre statue of a woman in glistening stainless steel looking across the Dnieper from its eastern approach with a raised sword in one raised arm and a shield bearing the Soviet emblem in the other. It survived the purging of communist monuments in paying homage to the fallen heroes of the country's liberation from Nazi Germany. It's just as well that it was left standing, because what could be put there in its place? During one hot June week in 2019, I move in with Sergei on Batieva Hill in western Kiev, from where Genghis Khan's grandson, Batu Khan, besieged, stormed, and torched the city in 1240, casting the kingdom into centuries of oblivion. Today it is a mixed district of the city, with tired-looking tower blocks that eventually give way to more affluent housing along streets winding their way downhill. Sergei offers me tea and shows me the kitchen. The stove is from Khrushchev's time, he informs me. Though I think it's a joke, but no, the heavy iron gas cooker in Sergei's flat in Kiev looks as if it dates from the 50s or early 60s. Enameled, white, 50 centimetres wide, and made by, well, there is no name. Why should there be? It's simply the stove, from a time when all products were manufactured and delivered by the people's only company to the only people. But the stove has kept on going for almost three quarters of a century. At least some kind of quality was achievable by the planned economy. Sergei's flat is of an older standard, but in good nick. The stairwell, however, is beyond disrepair. Damp, broken doors, crumbling paintwork, wires hanging loosely from walls, dust and rubbish. Sergei is 25 and works as a courier for a restaurant. He works irregular hours and claims to earn 400 euro a month. The odd tip here and there adds a little more on the plus side. It is still not enough to get by on. For while prices in Ukraine are generally low, around half of those in Sweden, many import goods are priced roughly on a par with other European countries. Yet somehow, he has to get by. Sergei rents out a room in the two-room flat he inherited from his grandmother. This brings in a little cash. How do people pay for doctors and dentists? Unforeseen events? Car repairs? How do they start a family? The answer to this last question is, they don't. The number of Ukrainians in the country is on a steady decline. People avoid having children or they move abroad to make some money. The pay conditions are creating a constant pull towards the West. Sergei also says he works cash in hand. What about unemployment insurance, health insurance? They'll sort themselves out. Normal, no? He replies good-naturedly. When I express my sympathy over injustice in the city, the health hazards, or the insecurity of his job and his existence. It's all right. We're all going to die someday. No one knows when. Normal, no? That's just what things are like in the Wild East. It wasn't much fun when Batu Khan's army knocked on the city gates either. In this respect, today's Kiev is pretty damn normal, no? In 2018, the average salary in the country is 7,800 hryvnia a month, 
just over €300. The minimum salary is barely half of that. The median salary, however, was almost 9,000 hryvnia, which shows that those who have jobs, especially in the major cities, have much higher salaries than the actual wholly unsustainable average. In Kiev, salaries are 60% above the national average. One afternoon, on my way back to Sergei's, I take a path up Batieva Hill that passes through a wooded slope. My path is lined with empty cans, boxes and plastic bags. Before I enter Sergei's block, I stop. It's 30 degrees centigrade, and I loiter under a tree, looking at the shabby façade and the abandoned wreck of a car that seems to be a standard feature outside the country's apartment blocks. No gruff Soviet police demand to see documenti anymore. But where is the indispensable housing association chairperson who pastes up rules for the laundry room and plans the facade cleaning? Here, there is no laundry room, no community renovation days, and if circles of dampness appear on the wall, you shrug and hope they dry out. The country is free, but shared responsibility has been abandoned. In many ways, modern Kiev gives the impression of being a normal global city. But some things in Ukraine, often just small details, are different. Toilets are built with the light switch outside the door, which has repeatedly left me standing in a state of high-octane desperation, fumbling in the darkness for the switch along grimy walls. English phrases can be seen in every other shop, on posters, and even the underground announces the station names in English. Very few normal people still speak nothing but Russian and Ukrainian, when at the same time sundry consumer products and fast food chains flaunt English words. Kiev's commercial space offers a whole collection of services targeted at the global middle class that slops all around the world wanting to be entertained. Kiev, then. A blend of old pomp, semi-old ruin, and the behaviours and gadgets of the new middle class. Can you also say that Ukraine has appropriated the values of the global village? No. Firstly, there is no one single Ukraine. If, nonetheless, one were still to talk about a general state, comparable with describing how food tastes by taking the average of an entrecote and an orange, Ukraine's average values still differ in a rather telling way. The Veltzel Ingelhardt value map that the World Value Survey, or WVS, regularly publishes shows that Ukraine, while relatively secular rather than tradition-bound, is clearly more orientated towards survival and individual self-expression. It's easy to see why. After independence in 1991, the economy collapsed. The old structures vanished. By 1995, GDP had plummeted by 60% from 1990 levels. Between 1991 and 1996, industrial output dropped by more than half, more than the decline of the Soviet economy during the Second World War. After liberation, many Ukrainians saw their life savings decimated. Hyperinflation in the early 1990s plunged 80% of the people into poverty, and left a quarter without work. Those who lived on the minimum wage saw their purchasing power drop by 95%, according to studies from Kiev's National Economic University. 
This had an immediate knock-on effect on the family, and the birth rate sank. And public finances were devastated. In 1991, the population was 52 million. By 2020, it is 42 million, of whom only 37 million actually live in the country. In the 2000s, as the oligarchs stepped onto the scene, the economy recovered. The Orange Revolution in 2004 introduced new economic stress, particularly on the sources of income that hinged on relations with Russia. With Euromaidan and the war ten years later, the country descended into another economic crisis, so that by 2015 the average income was half what it had been in 2013. CEIC data 2019. Christian Andershon, a classmate from my old school in Malmo, has been head of the Kiev branch of the Scandinavian bank SEB for the past dozen years or so. We meet at Beef, a bar with a contemporary sober atmosphere and unseemly prices. When I put my bag down on the floor beside our table, a waiter suddenly appears and lifts it delicately onto a small leather-strapped stool that he produces for this very purpose. After the huge post-Euromaidan setback, Ukraine's economy has recovered somewhat. Officially, growth has been around 2.5% in the past few years, probably more given the shadow economy. But the class differences are huge, and I don't think that's good for the country, Christian explains. Income tax is one-fifth of salary, plus a 1.5% surtax extracted to cover the costs of the war against Russia. A report from the World Bank states that growth is too low to reduce poverty and become more aligned with neighbouring European states. Per capita purchasing power is a third of Poland's, and poverty is higher than it was in 2014. Growth in productivity and investments is low and is stymied by the declining population. To stimulate investments, the government has treated companies to tax relief. Christiane says, however, that in many ways, developments have been heading in the right direction. The bank sector has been cleaned up and the currency has stabilised. The population is educated and often ambitious, and Ukraine has a free trade agreement with the EU. But the proportion of bad loans, meaning loans with defaulted repayments, is ridiculously high. 50% as opposed to 1% in Sweden. Many of the big borrowers don't make the required repayments and get away with it because the court system is so broken. This puts creditors on alert, generally making it difficult to take out loans for investments. The country has substantial assets. Ukraine is still one of the world's biggest grain exporters and exports huge volumes from the coal and steel belt in the east. The IT industry is mushrooming, especially in eastern Ukraine and Kiev, Christian says. Christiane and I haven't seen each other for 40 years. In the half-empty restaurant, we talk about old classmates in Sweden and where they are now, share memories of souped-up mopeds roaring along the small tracks around Limham's limestone quarry and discuss the state of our ageing parents. Our meat dishes are brought in, and a waiter arrives with a bottle of red wine that he decants into a carafe airing it by demonstratively and earnestly sweeping it round in circles with coordinated hip gyrations before filling our glasses. Cute or comical? I can't decide. 
How will a restaurant be able to justify scandalous prices for a nice wine that can be purchased for a third of the price in the bar next door if they don't also perform a little ceremony when serving it? In Christiane's view, corruption in the court is the problem holding the economy hostage. The courts can be fixed. I'm convinced of it. George has done it. Singapore did it ages ago. What it takes is a raise in salary for judges, a tough crackdown on corrupt judges, and stricter penalties. It's not at all impossible. According to the ILO estimate for 2018, unemployment is at 1.6 million, which corresponds to just over 9% of the workforce. Yet there is also a labour shortage, particularly of skilled craftsmen who can earn a relatively good 10 to 15,000 hryvnia a month equivalent to about four to seven hundred euro. But many young people prefer to move abroad, where the salaries are much higher. Others stay behind and struggle on. One day I take an afternoon trip to Svatopetrivskia, a village southwest of Kiev, to visit Vadim Kuzminsky, 45, who lives there with his wife Tanya, 40, and their three children. Vadim sells agricultural material to customers in the neighbouring oblasts. For the past two years, they have been living in an impeccably clean three-room flat, decorated in light colours in a relatively new block. It's quite cramped. My son sleeps on the sofa in the open kitchen, and the girls share one room, and Tanya and I have the other. But it works, he says. Vadim bought the flat for the equivalent of €30,000 furnished it for 20000 and the company he works for helped him secure a loan. The fee is about €80 Euro a month. The interest is what hurts. We pay 19%, but that's low compared to some people. In 2019, inflation was around 8%, he tells me, dropping to 6.5% at the end of the year. One reason for the high mortgage interest rates is the lack of a functioning capital flow between the banks. The central bank's base rate is 15.5%, and added to this are the bank's profits. Historically, inflation has been high. During the financial crisis in the 1990s, it was several hundred percent. In 2015, it was 44%, but now it is clearly heading south. I ask Vadim if Tanya getting a job one day is on the cards. We've talked about it, but I don't think so. We settled down early and wanted a family, and neither of us went to university. Tanya would get so little pay that it'd hardly be worth it once she'd pay for travel and food costs. But she has an active life. She drives and is involved in the church. Even though the economy is pressuring the family, it is not the most important political issue for Vadim. I voted for Poroshenko. He wasn't a populist and campaigned for Ukrainian unity. But generally speaking... I think that politics is too much focused on the economy. National identity and stability are more important. We have to know what Ukraine is and wants to be. Where are we headed? That's one of the causes of the corruption. Many people in authority take backhanders from the Russian lobby since national pride is so weak. Vadim compares the country to Poland, Hungary and Czechia. Countries with a similar post-communist past and regrets that Ukraine has achieved nowhere near their level of development. Prosperity there has grown enormously. They're developing, and that's because they feel a sense of loyalty towards their countries. 
People don't have that in Ukraine, especially in the southern and eastern parts, where the old Soviet mentality lives on. If the country and its economy are to move on, this will have to change. We drink tea and look out over the plains for a while. Then I leave Vadim with mixed feelings, a mix of empathy and, well, envy, I guess. Empathy that he has just got on the property ladder based on, from where I'm standing, unreasonable terms. I pay interest that is just over one-twentieth of his. And his hopes that the country's politicians will deliver identity is an abstraction hard to serve up. But he is driven by a real hope of his family's future and is carried along by an unusual, slightly old-fashioned code of honour, an attitude of resolve, diligence and modesty. Corruption is the recurring theme, both in conversations I have with people and in the reports I read on the country. To me, its character is as exotic and mysterious as that nonchalance towards customer needs that I experienced at the station back in 2002. There's a charm to Ukraine's chaos. Everything's possible. Says Andrei Kruglashov, political consultant and campaign strategist and former activist, coordinator in the grassroots movement Chesno and one of the founders of the Action Institute. He has settled himself on the sofa of a Chinese restaurant, smartly dressed in a dark suit and white shirt and a tie that he has now loosened. Ukraine is like a solar system in a permanent state of change and fragmentation where power orbits new planets. We order our lunches and I ask him to explain the anatomy of the corruption and its constant presence. Corruption requires two things, scarcity and gatekeepers. You have to understand that corruption draws its life force from being regarded as a solution. And it has been. We've been living with an inhuman system in which corruption has been a pressure valve or an airbag. The motivation for climbing up the system is that it provided protection against random violence. A skilled doctor knew that their services were worth more than they were officially paid for, and they could take advantage of that. The patients understood this too. Corruption was a means of surviving respectfully in the system. Kruglashov holds that the corruption is an alternative control system, in which those with power over the unreasonable system let subordinates break rules. And then many of us have a naive view of corruption. We think that anyone with more money than us are corrupt. But when we ourselves are involved in it, that's another thing. If we see where the money comes from, corruption is instead a practical solution to different problems. I explained to Andrei Kruglashov that I understand that corruption blossomed after the fall of the Soviet Union, the financial crisis, and the privatization drive that made millionaires of the elite. Much of what has worked in the country's modernization is also part of the oligarch epoch. But in that case, corruption should be a rather superficial aspect of society. Or does it have deeper roots? I'd say it does, I'm afraid. Take something like offering money and lighting candles for patron saints in the church. We pay the icons to protect us, and we know that the state or the powers that be can't do that. So it's a deep-seated feeling. Ukraine also has a tradition of trusting to charity. Kiev became the Russian Empire's philanthropic centre in 1862, with hospitals, schools and shelters for the homeless and elderly. 
1929 saw the start of a programme to dismantle and forbid these charities. But the state that was to take over their role failed to deliver. Instead, Ukrainians were attacked on a broad front, both during the 1930s famine and later during Stalin's purges. Security and survival were up to the individual to somehow patch together according to their ability and by private arrangement. However, Kruglashov sees clear signs of change and of the imminent end of the oligarchic golden age. Although it's actually not just about the oligarchs, but about gatekeepers in general. We had a tradition whereby everything that you manage and supervise, you effectively own. In a system without profit or demand-side management, corruption makes it possible for private individuals to generate value for themselves where the system failed to. But now, technology is quickly changing society. Getting digital ID documents, buying tickets online, communicating with the authorities via fixed digital systems, social media, all this undermines the power of the gatekeepers. The control of real capital still confers power on the gatekeepers. But two revolts since 2004 and the elections have changed the playing field. During the years, Andrei Kruglashov campaigned for honesty and transparency in public administration. The activists would confront MPs with what they considered a common democratic problem, that they voted on parliamentary matters by proxy. As absentees, other people had to press their buttons for them. We said that we appreciated the fact that they were doing good things for the country, but we also wanted these things done properly. They often accepted our argument. There is now scope for a dialogue with politicians. That corruption is a pressing problem is, of course, well known to the regime. In the autumn of 2019, President Volodymyr Zelensky announced a seven-step war on corruption involving, for instance, reducing the number of MPs, dealing with absenteeism, and setting up supervisory bodies. The government has also implemented an AI system, dubiously named Big Brother, to chart anomalies in parliamentary voting patterns and to oversee the assets of state officials. In September, an anti-corruption court was also set up. The outcome of all this, however, is far from given. The proclamations by different political leaders promising to crack down on corruption are more an empty ritualistic display than anything that will actually yield results. I ask Andrei Kruglashov about another strange dimension of corruption, namely that it often consists of ridiculously petty gestures. A customer wanting to grease the processing of a pass, for example, might stick a chocolate cake under the clerk's window. I can understand that large sums of money can entice a poorly paid civil servant to adjust his routines, but why compromise your honour for a chocolate cake? Yeah, right, I can see what you mean, but it's a gesture of appreciation and bonding. It's like a tip that confirms your value. Serving an anonymous system hasn't been an honour in itself, so every sign that you're someone with personal value is welcome. Distances in central Kiev are not great, and you quickly learn that the choice between taking the underground and walking is decided not by distance, but by whether your destination is at such a topographical altitude that reaching it would mean a sweaty uphill trudge. 
One afternoon of too much going up and down hills, I arranged to have lunch with Mikola Rabchuk, poet, author, and a doctor of political science. We meet at Musafir, a Crimea Tatar exile restaurant on Kamelnitsky Street. He arrives punctually, wearing a grey blazer and a neatly trimmed beard. Me, I'm perspiring, and dressed a little too casually for the occasion. Rabchuk was an oppositional intellectual in the 1980s, and after independence, emerged as one of the country's most influential minds, in part as the editor of the journal Kritika. Before the reforms of Perestroika took off in the Soviet Union, I was a Samizdat writer. It was a time of strict censorship, especially in Ukraine, where Moscow tried to quash all Ukrainian bourgeois nationalism. Thanks to my involvement with Samizdat and my contacts with dissidents, I was suspended twice from university. But it was also an exciting time, and as it turned out, Ukraine played a key part in the dissolution of the USSR. He also notes that the role of literature then was much more central than it is today. It was the only institution beyond the official media. Mikola Rabchuk is often remembered for his conceptual figure from 1992 of a Ukraine as two mutually conflicting identities, one as a colony of Russia and one as a European nation. Others hold that this is too simplified a construct. Ukraine has, if anything, dozens of identities and narratives. But Rabchuk takes pains to point out that his dichotomy is not about linguistic or ethnic identities. Euromaidan and the Orange Revolution were not about linguistic or purely ethnic identity, but about a broader view of values. That you need to understand. Today, Ukraine has come far in what is really a process of liberation from the mindset of an East Slavic community towards a European identity and its corresponding values. This also explains Russia's aggression towards us, he says. In recent years, Rabchuk has been a clear advocate for the historical liberation process. But is this process impeccably conducted with a rigour of democratic prudence? During the current war, Ukraine has been accused by various civil rights organisations of gagging the Russian media and the country and of other forms of censorship. The Russian but oppositional TV channel Dozhd was blocked from the country's cable TV, ostensibly for broadcasting adverts without a licence, sending reporters to Crimea without Kiev's approval and describing the peninsula as Russian. Western organisations criticised the move which Rabchuk says was misguided. The main problem with the country's media, he explains, is more that a few exceedingly wealthy oligarchs have a dominant influence. He also thinks that the allegations of censorship and the blocking of Russian media are consequences of the war and cannot be compared to the communist era, the legacy of which still manifests itself in subversive Russian media campaigns. Everyone who knows anything about Ukraine sees that we have a free press. This does not mean that we must accept foreign campaigns bent on destabilizing the country, he says. According to Rabchuk, a longer view must also be taken of media freedom and corruption. The difference between the Yanukovych era, when the media was controlled from above, and the Poroshenko era is a mile wide. 
Rabchuk points out that in spite of everything, the oligarchy is accompanied by diversity. Today, there is a score of TV channels, all run by different oligarchs. Diversity has been established, but the oligarchy has also prevented an institutional and legally protected pluralism to take root. Freedom in Ukraine exists today, despite the will of the ruling elite, not because of it. He maintains that Ukraine is suspended between three forces, one acting on it from above, one from underneath, and one from the outside. Oligarchy, popular mobilization, and Russian pressure. The problem with this circumstance is that democracy constitutes a loose, fictitious narrative that has no stable institutional foundation. From the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, we have inherited and nurtured the notion of freedom and democracy being cardinal values. But on the other hand, we haven't inherited an equally strong value regarding the rule of law, and that's a major problem. We don't recognise the value of rules and procedures, says Mikola Rabchuk. For a week in the early autumn of 2019, I stay in a flat in Podil central Kiev's liveliest hive of creativity, with its young clientele, old buildings, shops, malls, and boutiques. If you come from central Kiev's fashionable quarter, the heart of Badil, Contractor Square, is best approached by taking a pleasant stroll down the tourist-packed Andreevsky descent, with its abundance of hawkers and bars and its rich Parisian atmosphere. One baking afternoon, I've arranged to meet sociologist and researcher Tetyana Kostuchenko, and since I'm half an hour early, I sit down under a cluster of trees that shade part of the large square. Every minute out of the sun must be fully exploited, and I sit down near the statue of Rahori Skovoroda, 17th-century philosopher and son of a Cossack from eastern Ukraine, one of the cultural luminaries whom Russia and Ukraine both truculently claim as their own. On a dry patch of grass next to me, someone has tossed a smouldering cigarette butt. Why? Why not? What are the chances of the grass catching fire? Probably minuscule. I bet 99 out of 100 times the dog end goes out by itself. I stay for a few minutes to check that it stops glowing. It's nothing to get worked up about. No. The chances are probably one in a hundred. If that. As a sociologist at the nearby and distinguished Kiev-Mohila University, Tetyana Kostuchenko expresses sober optimism towards the state of the nation. The police behave. Freedom of expression is established. Diversity has taken root and is appreciated, even though sexism is endemic and sexual minorities face an uphill struggle. But democracy in Ukraine is still incredibly far from mature. The link between freedom and personal responsibility is weak, and this affects everything, from learning to sort waste to understanding the inertia of democracy and the conditions under which it operates. She sees Zelensky's resounding victory and impact as the product of a democracy built on populism. The opinion-forming force of social media is aggravating polarization. I think it's down to laziness. The simpler the ideas, the easier they take hold. Tetyana Kostuchenko has researched how the state and capital in Ukraine interacted in the post-millennial epoch of revolutions and seismic power shifts and identified a key challenge. 
Ukraine is governed by an elite of businessmen and politicians that has been established in far-reaching personal networks. And since we have such a weak party structure, they decide how power is exercised. In her research, Kostachenko has charted how these networks have changed over time. During both the Orange Revolution and Euromaidan, when Yanukovych was overthrown and his party collapsed, the structures broke up. However, she also found that amongst the power players who survived the tumult, often at lower levels, such mutual personal relations remained intact. The networks are kept alive through reciprocal trust. That's the cement, not the parties. The politico-business collaboration that characterizes the modern Ukrainian elite survives and morphs as long as the individuals are still around. It's not healthy. So what does she think it will take to bring about change? The most important thing on a macro level is to resist the influence of the oligarchs. At a micro level, we have to nurture greater participation. People will have to learn to take responsibility. Apathy is widespread and must be fought. During the 2010s, Western Europe's political identities suffered a painful reorientation from the left-right dimension to globalism versus nationalism. Ukrainian landscape is of a different kind, with a nationalism that paradoxically strives to be international. Does this mean that the left-right dichotomy has had its day? Because what is left in Ukraine? Sympathy for industrial labourer honour and an anti-Nazi heritage? What's right? Church and capital? I meet up with Lviv-born poet Vasil Lasinski. Apart from writing verse, he is also a cultural activist based in Kiev. Poetry is a narrow field, but once, writers who also wrote in Russian could find a readership in Russia. That possibility is no longer there. So culture writers have found themselves with a shrunken market. On top of that are the effects of digitalization. Now that the printed media is no longer the self-evident portal to narratives of people's lives and dreams, Vasil Losinsky has moved from publishing in print to happenings and events. He himself says that he is involved in what can be called ongoing contemporary criticism, recording situations, subcultures and historic events. Politically, he identifies as left-wing. But how is this term to be understood in a country like post-Soviet Ukraine? Difficult question, Vasil admits. For me, it's about civilization critique the pursuit of social justice and standing outside the political system. It's about defending other values, such as representing oppressed minorities, supporting pacifism and opposing communism and xenophobia. It's these kinds of things that I guess you can call left-wing. Vasil Losinsky regrets the lack of influential organisations with social ambitions in Ukraine. We have, for instance, few effective unions. Socially aware activism is more about garnering publicity regarding individual phenomena, such as Holodomor. But politics via organising for rights has a very weak standing. It's the interests of the powerful that carry weight, even though much has improved. Yes, much is better in the city. Despite the financial crisis, its floundering identity and corruption, 
the war and the riots in which riot police shot and killed demonstrators on its streets. How to describe Kiev in the second decade of the 2000s? During a hilly trek after taking my leave of Lasinski, I fancy I see three faces. Firstly, the Kiev of mind-boggling glory, the grand classical city with a spirit of Russian empire, breathtaking views, domes, monasteries and monuments. But also the Kiev of the fallen empire, a city scarred by 70 years of planned economy, barely visible in its central spaces, but Take a few steps outside the centre and the buildings bellow in pain and cry out for some TLC and renovation. And rust, rust, rust everywhere and in a myriad of patterns. And then there the Kiev of modernity and globalism. With the young generation rises a city to a fresh identity that is neither post-Soviet depressed nor pretentiously grandiose. Ukraine's low prices can long make Kiev, especially Podil, a magnet for the young and creative, a hipster bonanza that has already taken shape with its murals, trendy bars, shopping malls and clubs. After anti-corruption activist Andrei Kruglashov and I finished our lunch at the Chinese restaurant in central Kiev, he leaned back in his sofa and delivered a summary. Ukraine swings back and forth. In many respects, we're a modern European country. We know what a sensible country has to be like and that corruption doesn't fit into that. There's a tale from Kyrgyzstan about a dragon living in a castle, which must be knocked down before the dragon can be slain. We in Ukraine are quick to stand united against the dragon, but have no idea how to demolish the castle. The facades have cracked, but the dragon's still inside. Andre loosened an already loose tie, as if there was one more degree of comfort to attain. He looked at the ceiling, as if trying to see the future up there. Ukraine is a ponderous giant where everything is in a state of flux and anything is possible. We are somewhere in between madness and something that can turn out really good. <laughs>